Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's open our Bibles to Acts chapter 2 this morning. Acts chapter 2. I've always loved the story about the woman who tried to join a fashionable church, but they didn't want her to join. See, she was from the other side of the tracks, the bad part of town. This was a fashionable church. Five times in a year she tried to join. Five times she was turned down. You see, the elders didn't want this lady to sit next to some of the well-to-do, wealthier people in the congregation and spoil it. So one day she came to church and an elder spotted her. The elder quickly ran up and poured on all of the pious, religious gobbledygook. Well, why don't you just go home, he said, and, and pray about this and see what God says to you. So she turned around and she left. Well, they didn't hear from her for months. One day, that elder was walking downtown into an office building where this lady was a cleaning lady. She was scrubbing floors. And the elder, in a lighthearted moment, walked over to her and said, Hey, Aren't you the lady that tried to join our church? She said, yes, I am. And did you go home and have that talk with the Lord? Yes, I did. So the elder said, what did God say? She smiled and said, the Lord told me not to be too discouraged. He's been trying to get into your church for 20 years with no more success than I've had. (laughs) Now, you know what? You never want to be part of a church where Jesus is on the outside trying to get in. Like the church that Jesus said, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. He said that to a group of believers. He was on the outside trying to get in. Well, I'm grateful to say that this church is, is not one of those churches. It's not. A few weeks ago in our study on heaven, I said something to you. I said one of the great things about going to heaven is being in heaven with you. And I meant that. And today I want to say one of the great privileges of my life is serving you at this great church. And that goes not only for me, but for my wife heading up the women's ministry and my son, who's one of the youth pastors. We love this. And and I've had the opportunity to walk through so many different life experiences with you. Births, baby dedications, deaths, problems with your children problems with your parents in some cases, joys, sorrows. And you've walked with me through many of life experiences that have been pretty tough as well. So we're a family. But you know, pastors have the unique position of covering all of life's gamut. And for somebody with ADD like me, my wife says I have it, it's, it's a good thing. There's just a lot of variety. Today what I'd like to do is simple. Um, I want to give you what I see as a reflection of you, this body, this church, in the Scriptures. I've been studying the book of Acts because we were in it last Wednesday. And the book of Acts highlights the first church, the original church, what God originally intended the church to be. And we see the model of that, the template of that, in the book of Acts. And there are some marks, highlights, marks of a vibrant, healthy Christian community. And so many of them I see with you. So I want to bring those up to you today. 
I'm, I'm not naive. I know that not everyone who attends here, uh, this describes them. Some of these areas you need to grow into. We all do. But by and large, I see a wonderful work of God happening here. And I just feel that from time to time, you need to hear from your pastor how cool you are and what a privilege it is. So let's look at Acts chapter 2. We're going to pick it up in verse 36. We're coming into the tail end of a message that Peter gives on Pentecost in Jerusalem in the temple. Therefore, here's his concluding remark. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren... What shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, for the promise is to you and to your children, and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. And with many other words he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in prayers. Then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common, and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. Let's pray together. Father, one of the great benefits about being your child is that we're placed into a spiritual family, imperfect, in the making, in a process of being molded, but a family nonetheless. And we thank you, Father, for the spiritual family, the body of Christ, and how we have learned and how we have grown because of people who have been around us, sometimes challenging us, other times simply encouraging us. Thank you that we're a part and we play a very strategic part in this family and in this community. In Jesus' name, amen. You should know that 118 times in the New Testament the word church shows up. You know what that word is, ecclesia. speaks of a group of called out individuals for a purpose. Now, 115 of those times, it is correctly translated church as we know it. Three of those times, it simply generically means an assembly. It could be an assembly of any group. But it was the church that Jesus promised he would build, right? He said, upon this rock, I will build my church. In Acts chapter 2 here, we see the beginning of his building of that. This is when the church was born. It's Pentecost, 2,000 years ago, in Jerusalem. 
And on that day, the church is born. This is the delivery room. And delivery rooms are very exciting. They're loud, sometimes very confusing, but always a lot of fun because new life is birthed. And here on Pentecost, 2,000 years ago in Acts chapter 2, there's 3,000 new spiritual babes who are born. This is explosive growth. And all of this happens without a budget, without a policy manual, without a building, without a PA system, without pledge cards. It's just this move of God, and there's life that happens in Jerusalem because of it. When the church started, it's very simple. It was not complicated. It was not sophisticated. If you were to walk up to any one of the leaders in Jerusalem, like Peter, James, or John, and if you were to pose a question like, excuse me, but are you premillennial in your eschatology? They think you're from the moon or something. It was just a group of people who knew that Jesus was alive, risen from the dead, and they rallied around him and around what he was doing with his people. I love this simplicity. It reminds me of something I remember years ago when the Jesus movement was just getting underway out on the West Coast and several Christian leaders in the community just couldn't figure out how all these young hippies were buying Bibles and singing songs and in love with Jesus. And it was recorded in the newspaper, one Christian leader saying, what did they know? All they have is Jesus. Quite a statement, isn't it? What else do they need but Jesus? And they knew that. They knew that they had Jesus and they would grow from there and they could become as sophisticated as they want. But at this point, they just had Jesus. Well, beginning with that, let me now give you four qualities that mark this first church in Acts as a great church. And then I'd like to reflect that into what I see here. Number one, there was a bold proclamation And a bold proclamation marked this first assembly. Now we notice, just where we began in verse 36, that the one doing the preaching here is Peter. Yes, the Peter we all know and love. The fumbling, stumbling, bumbling Peter who said dumb things, who was afraid to talk to a servant girl in a courtyard. Now he's in Jerusalem in front of a crowd, boldly, articulately, giving a message filled with Scripture that is convicting to the heart. This is Peter. He's a fisherman, not a theologian. He's not a professional evangelist. But he takes seriously the Great Commission, so he speaks boldly. And that marks this early church. Now, before you say, yeah, but that's Peter. He's one of those special guys, those apostle guys. You know, the average church person didn't do that, couldn't do that. Only these apostle guys did it. Well, you'd be wrong if you thought that. Because as you keep reading through this very same book of Acts, you discover that church people were doing this as well. For instance, you come to Acts chapter 7. You have one of the servants in Jerusalem, one of the deacons in Jerusalem, just a guy who would serve the tables, named Stephen, goes into a synagogue, boldly proclaims the word of God, Creates quite a stir that day. Becomes the first martyr. Acts chapter 8. Another servant in the church named Philip goes up to Samaria. Boldly proclaims the gospel. A revival breaks out. 
Acts chapter 9, an antagonist named Saul gets converted. In the rest of the book of Acts, he boldly proclaims the gospel. Evangelism, and i.e. bold verbal communication, marks this church in the book of Acts. It was A.W. Pink who once said, If a church does not evangelize, it will eventually fossilize. Or to put it another way, a church that is not reaching out is passing out. And one of the reasons this church here, you, are not fossilizing is because you're doing evangelizing. You're doing it. Not just me doing it or different ministry leaders doing it, but I know that you're doing it because I hear the testimony of people saying, yeah, I came here because my neighbor who comes here drugged me here or invited me here or shared something with me. You're evangelists. And that doesn't necessarily mean professional. My first exposure to an evangelist was a good one. It was Dr. Billy Graham. Can't get much better than that. I was watching television. I've told you this story a number of times. I was watching this man simply give the gospel, and he looked right into the camera. I felt like he's looking right at me. And he says, if you're watching by television, you can know Christ. And I thought, okay. And I prayed. That was a good experience. I have had other ones that aren't so good. The second experience I had was a big tent revival in San Bernardino, California. I'm a brand new Christian. I see this big tent on the corner of a street. Uh, inside it's dirt floors and sawdust. All I have on is shorts, t-shirt, and flip-flops. I walk in. It's a tent. And I see this evangelist, big three-piece suit, hair plastered back deep accent. And he came up to me and says, you're not welcome here. And I thought, why? He says, because of the way you're dressed. This is the house of God. I said, this is a sawdust tent, but it's the house of God. So I was banished from this evangelist tent. That's the second experience I had with a professional evangelist. Wasn't a good one. Now I've learned something since all of those experiences. Evangelism isn't always professional. It's more than likely relational. That's where you come in. The relationships you have in the community speaks volumes. I hear that testimony. I hear that testimony. Did you know 95% of all Christians... Here's the the stats from the Gallup organization. 95% of all Christians have never led anyone to Christ. Now, I see the opposite here. I see a very active group of people here. We see thousands of people literally come to Christ. We see them come to Christ here every week. We see 1,500 baptisms a year where people make that public profession by water baptism, being obedient to Christ, 1,500 a year. You've sponsored six crusades in this city. By and large, it's been your support that has done that. But then, there's ministries with the college, with our high school group, with our mid-high group, all of them taking mission trips, all of them doing evangelistic outreaches, sending their students out to the streets. For instance, our mid-high group has this meeting out in the park. It's called Freeburger Thursday. And over the past few years, your mid-high students have led 150 people to Jesus Christ. That's your kids. 
That's not to say anything of missions. You support over a hundred full-time missionaries out on the field. You're a bunch of evangelists. You're out there doing it. In fact, you ought to know something. Every year, we as a church spend $3 million on outreach. And we're glad that we do because we see the fruit of it. We're sowing into eternity with that kind of money. We love seeing that happen. You see, there's nothing automatic about the survival of a church. It's sort of like a car manufacturer. If it stops producing cars, it's going to go out of business. And if a church, any church, doesn't lend itself to becoming an instrument of bringing new life into itself, new believers, as Pink said, they will eventually fossilize. It was Chesterton, G.K. Chesterton, who said, We don't want a church that will move with the world. We want a church that will move the world. I am so thankful to be part of a body of believers that is moving the world for Jesus Christ. And I see a progression. I've watched it now over years. And this is what I see. I see that there's a a process that, that happens when people come that's generally like this. You begin by knowing, and you move on to growing, and then you end up going. I watch this all the time. People come, they listen to Bible studies, they get involved in groups, they're learning about their faith, they're learning about the Bible, and then they start growing in their faith. And as they're growing, they want to do something. Knowing, growing, and going. Years ago, I was in India. And I walked up to this conversation that I saw happening between Christian leaders. Uh, two young men and an older gentleman just listening. And the two young men were, were describing their churches and how big they were. And we've been doing this since then and kind of bragging a little bit. And this older Christian brother listening. And finally he interrupted and said, Brothers, are you living in the book of Numbers? Or are you living in the book of Acts? And that sort of quieted that conversation. I am so blessed to be part of a church that is living still in the book of Acts. You're doing this. Bold proclamation. A second mark of this church in the book of Acts is what I call glad reception. Glad reception. Look with me at verse 41. Then those who gladly received His word... Gladly received His Word. Or you could translate that, joyfully welcomed His Word. The word means to consent to, to give entrance to something. Now I know that primarily what verse 41 is referring to is a group of unbelievers joyfully listening to the good news about the gospel, that their sins can be forgiven. However... Once they joyfully receive the gospel and they are converted, look at verse 42. They continue in that. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. This is what I want you to see. Here's a group that's responsive to the truth. They hear the truth. They receive the truth. They walk in the truth. And so for a church to thrive, it needs not only 
the sowing of the gospel seed, i.e. a bold proclamation, but a glad reception, the willingness to receive the word of God. Now listen to this description. This is Paul writing to the Thessalonian church. What a compliment to any church. He writes them and says, When you received his message from us, you didn't think of our words as mere human ideas, but you accepted what we said as the very word of God. You know, you can listen to a message two different ways. You can listen passively. You you can listen actively. Think about the first one. A passive listener is somebody who listens mechanically. The words go inside their heads. They think about it a little bit, but they're passive. Sort of like somebody watching television. They're getting the information from watching, but there's no buy-in. They're just listening. That's it. One person writes, Many regular church attendees consistently focus their minds on sporting events, business affairs, or matters of personal interest as soon as the sermon begins. Many so-called worshipers can tell you what dress the pastor's wife wore in the service, but cannot recall the text of the sermon or the application of the message to their lives. That's a passive listener. An active listener is different. An active listener comes and thinks, I have an appointment with God. He's going to say something to me. I want to hear what he has to say, and I want my week and my life changed by it. It's like what the writer of Hebrews writes, Hebrews 2. We must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard. It so blesses me the way you listen to truth. You know, Jesus said, take heed how you hear. That's what you do. It blesses me to see how you receive the truth. There's very little movement in this church when the message is being proclaimed. You bring Bibles with you. You're looking at them. I hear when I say, turn to all those Bible page noises. I love that. i got to record that. Such a great sound. And some of you take notes. You write down the points. You take them home to consider them. Walt Whitman once wrote, to have great poets, we must have great audiences. You're a great audience. And I know that not only for me, every guest speaker I have here, says, man, it's so great to come and speak to your congregation. When are you going out of town next? (laughs) I've spoken to different audiences around the world, and I noticed the difference. I've been in some places where the only one with a Bible was me. I'm talking churches. I've been in some places where they don't even have a pulpit. It's like, yeah, here's a music stand. Is that cool? I think a pulpit has a statement. The Word of God has authority, and it's central. I know of some places where pastors don't even bring Bibles when they come to the platform to address a congregation. I guess it's cool. It's sort of like hip now. Forget the Bible. Let me just share with you. All I can surmise is they are either ashamed of the gospel or they have no expectation for God to speak. You are so different. You listen actively. You want God to speak to you. I just want to throw out a word of caution. It could be that some of you are going to move to a new city and you're looking for a church and there's different options. Let me just say that make sure that these two elements are present. Bold proclamation of truth mixed with a group of people who is nurtured by the truth and expect to hear truth and they listen actively. And they're not afraid to be spiritual believers. 
I spoke to a worship leader. No joke. He said, you know, our pastor tells us that when we select songs for the congregation, that they shouldn't be too spiritual. Can you imagine that? Yeah, he says, don't have songs that have a lot of Jesus in them, especially blood of Jesus songs. They're not really liked in our church. Shame on them. Charles Spurgeon wrote about pastors who don't preach the gospel and churches who don't include that kind of songs in their hymnology. And he said, I have one thing to say concerning them. Never go hear them. It's like the little boy who came home from church one Sunday. He was being tucked in bed that night. And he said, oh, Lord, we had such a great time at church today. I wish you could have been there too. I bet he wishes the same. There's a third mark of a great congregation, and that is steadfast dedication. Steadfast dedication. I take you to verse 42 again. And they, here's the two words, continued, mark that, continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and breaking of bread and in prayers. Now there's two words there, continued steadfastly. It's only one word in the Greek language. It means to adhere or stick to something. It means to be in earnest toward, be in diligence of, to give constant attention to. That's what the words they continued steadfastly means. The same exact Greek word is used in verse 46 in the word continuing. Look at that. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple. There's an ongoing devotion. There's a firm dedication. It was an ongoing practice to listen to Bible study, the Apostles' Doctrine. It was an ongoing practice to get together in fellowship. It was an ongoing practice and devotion and dedication to pray together and to break the Lord's Supper together. That's the point that Luke, the author, wants to drive home. They stuck to it. They didn't shed a tear, raise a hand, and then forget it the rest of their lives. There was an ongoing process of being devoted and dedicated. And again, that's why I'm blessed with you. Not only do you evangelize in the community, not only do you listen and when you come to church, but you come to church all the time. That's a good thing. We have on our books... Every month, over 350 different events that take place here at Calvary. That's you. I, I'm, I'm so blessed. Whenever I come any night of the week, I can go any part of the campus. There's lights on. There's people meeting in rooms. Bible's open. They're praying for one another. They're discipling each other, encouraging one another. And then there's Wednesday nights. You know that people kind of sneak in early in the morning. As soon as the doors are open... Before they get to work, they'll place their Bibles or, or, or they'll save seats or at lunchtime they'll save seats for Wednesday night Bible study. What a great problem to have. <laughs> Keep sneaking. The fourth mark I want to bring up in closing that marked this assembly in the book of Acts was a voluntary contribution. Voluntary contribution. Verse 44. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common. This is material possessions now. They had all things in common. And they sold 
their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. I love this. The Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. Here is a spontaneous, voluntary, mutual participation whereby the members of this group give their time, their talents, and their treasure. They give themselves to the Lord. They give their substance to one another. And the church is edified. Now, I want to correct something. There are some people who read this and say, Oh, this is nothing more than communism. This is not communism. Communism says, What's yours is mine. This is commonism. That says, What's mine is yours. That's voluntary. It's spontaneous. It's generous. It's from the heart. I'll tell you what, what blesses me here. It blesses me to see your generosity. Whenever we have a crisis, whether it's a 9-11 in this country or a hurricane or a fire on the West Coast or flooding down in the Gulf, whenever we take up a special offering, you respond. You give. Many of you even go if you can and you have that opportunity. There's groups of people who give and they go to that. You volunteer. We have 150 different ministries at this church. And we have conservatively logged in last year. This is what you've done now. A total of 125,000 hours of volunteer service. That's what you've done. That's a healthy, vibrant church. That's signs of life and vitality. I'll tell you a story. A few years ago, I got a letter. I get a lot of letters. I got a letter from a lady. Her family was in dire need. Husband lost a job. They had to leave their house. They were now a little apartment. They didn't have a car. And she writes, this is all she said, please pray for my family and pray that we get a car. So I did. I did pray. And I shared that letter with our staff. And one of our staff members at the time said, hey, I want to take that as a project for the youth group. We want to buy her a car. I thought, well, that's a bold statement. So this youth group started having car washes and fundraisers to gather enough money to buy some kind of a car for this family. Well, you know, how much can you make on a car wash? But They kept doing it. These kids were out working. In the process, somebody in the congregation found out what they were doing, decided, look, I'll buy the car. And they took the money raised from the car washes, filled the car full of groceries, and delivered it to this family. Now, here's part of the letter I got back from this lady. I wanted to write you and tell you how much each of you has touched my life and the lives of my children, Brian and Sam. Your love, faith, and generosity has has had a tremendous ripple effect to those around me. The first night you delivered food to my door, now this is the youth group doing this, the first night you delivered food to my door, my boys could not believe that Jesus knew or cared that their favorite jam was grape-flavored and that they liked creamy peanut butter. The boy's faith was sealed that night. And my faith was strengthened tremendously. When I answered the door and I saw a license plate and a car registration on the doorstep, something inside leapt for joy. 
She says, that night was only our second night in our new apartment. I didn't know any of my neighbors. Several of them had seen a large group of you, and then when I came out crying like a baby, they called the police. (laughs) You, You can imagine this, right? Now, police were told there's a group of 30 or 40 teenagers out in the parking lot and a woman crying with two little kids. But, the report said, the group of teenagers were from a local church and had come to secretly deliver a car to one of their members in need. The best part is that my grandfather, who's always had a closed heart, cannot believe that anyone would give a car to someone and give hundreds of dollars worth of food to his granddaughter and his great-grandchildren. We call you our angels at home, and I love each of you. And she signed it. Now, that's, that's the youth group seeing a need and spontaneously giving. Now, the church in Jerusalem did the same. They gave of their time, their talent, and their treasure, and they were generous about it, spontaneously generous. And that's the way the Bible tells us to be. Second Corinthians 9, verse 7. Let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly, nor of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. God loves a cheerful giver. I'll tell you what God doesn't love then. It would mean that God doesn't love a uncheerful giver. Stingy giver. Okay, I'm going to write this check goes again a tithe there's so many cool things I could have had keep it God loves a cheerful giver and it means hilarious is the Greek word God doesn't live like okay I'll do it God loves (laughs) that's hilarious giver God loves a cheerful giver one source that I found says 32% of Christians claim to tithe only 12% actually do. Another source, over 50% of the members of any given congregation, Christian congregation, donate little or nothing toward their church's upkeep and ministries. I thank God for those who are generous. I thank God for them. Now you know, you've come here for any length of time, I don't do pledge Sundays or stewardship drives. I certainly don't do, I believe there are 40 people here right now, each with a thousand dollars. God's revealed it to me. I don't do any of that kind of stuff because it's a sham. And goodness, we don't even take a normal offering here. We don't do that. I heard a story about Mark Twain who went to a church one Sunday and the guy kept haranguing on and on and on about money. And it so angered Mark Twain that not only did he not give what he was thinking about giving, but when the plate came around, he actually took money from it and kept it. (laughs) Please don't do that. That's not a good example. I do want you to know, however, how we're doing as a congregation. Now, there's always needs, and we always trust the Lord, and we always pray, Lord, provide so that we can do more outreach, so that we can do more things for your glory. Every Christian organization does. So we love it when people, God's people are generous, but we want you to know something in the process. We want you to know how we're doing. Now, right now, the country, the whole country is in an economic 
sort of a downturn. We're scared and, and we don't know what's going to happen. And there's an economic slowdown. We're in hard times. And so what we find nationally, because I speak to a lot of Christian leaders, is that Christian giving nationally is decreasing with that economic downturn. However, there are a couple of exceptions. You happen to be one of those exceptions. Not only uh, are we not seeing a downturn, we're not even seeing it stay the same. We're actually seeing an increase in finances over the last year, year and a half. We've watched that. It's God's faithfulness. So we've thought about that, and we're very conservative around here how we budget things. But we decided, wouldn't it be great if we could double our payments, pay this thing off, the whole property. So the plan we're on is we're tightening the belt, and in 50 months, we believe we're going to be able to pay off all of this property and then hand the next generation something completely debt-free. Then all of the finances that come in can be used for outreach and not a building. Now, there was a pastor who was down south. He was preaching it up. And this is one of those churches, I don't know if you've ever been to one, but it's very vocal both ways. The preacher yells and people yell back at him. It's like a conversation. And so this preacher was preaching and he said, and this church has got to be like the cripple man and get up and walk. And they said, let it walk, preacher, let it walk. He kept preaching a little while, and they said, this church has got to be like Elijah on Mount Carmel, and got to get up and run. And they said, let it run, preacher, let it run. And he kept working himself into a lather, and finally he said, and this church has got to mount up with wings like eagles and fly. And they got all excited. Let it fly, preacher, let it fly. And he said, now for this church to fly, it's going to take some money. <laughs> and one, one guy yelled out, let it walk, preacher, let it walk. <laughs> Well, by God's grace, we want to soar into the future. And I just want to say to you, thank you for being faithful to God, to His people. Thank you for scattering hands to share the gospel. Thank you for listening ears to God's Word. Thank you for active feet to constantly do this. And thank you for generous hearts. This is not a church where Jesus is on the outside knocking to come in. He's very much on the inside and working his life out into the world through your lives. What a blessing to be a part of this. Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. If you would like more information about what you've heard in this message or about Calvary of Albuquerque, please visit our website at www.calvaryabq.org. If you have made a decision to follow Christ or would like someone to pray for you, please leave a message with our prayer watch line at 505-344-3658. Thank you and God bless.